Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be completing our look at Martin Eden by Jack London. Uh, this is the fourth episode, so I urge you to go back and listen to the last three episodes. Uh, and actually, this whole series on Jack London can help lead you to this climax of this of his really his masterpiece, Martin Eden. In the first three episodes, we explored how Martin Eden transitioned from being a sailor to becoming a writer. Despite struggles and increasing alienation, uh, that he, he started to see the beginnings of success. He started to sell stories. As he got closer to the middle class life, though, and as people started to recognize him and he got closer to his, uh, his fiancée, the very bougie uh, character Ruth Morse, he started to get more tied to that class. But at the same time, he started to learn that that middle class that he once idealized and wanted to be part of lacked intellectual curiosity and a power, I want to say, almost like a independence of mind and spirit, which he valued so much. He didn't seem to have it there. Instead, what he found were consumers of ideas and a general lack of creative freedom. He also found few people who could understand him. And this, ch- this changes when he meets a friend, uh, a fellow writer, much older though, uh, named Brissendem. This writer was a leftist, while Martin Eden, unlike Jack London, is, is a rightist, a reactionary. Um, Brissenden was cl- probably closer to Jack London's views, his socialist views. But he shared Eden's intellectual power, his prowess, and individuality. Brisson introduces Eden to philosopher friends who show Eden that the middle class is not really the place one can go to find his intellectual equal. And that's essentially where the third the third quarter of Martin Eden ends. And so we're going to move into the final 10 chapters or so, the last 100 pages of, of Martin Eden. Uh, so we begin in chapter 37. Taking Brissenden's advice, Eden sends his philosophical essay out for publication. This was an essay he had written before, but he kind of was sitting on it. He wasn't sure it could be taken seriously. He was kind of making a name for himself as a fiction writer and then later on as a writer of of ephemera and writing uh, a writer of kind of vulgar hack work, essentially, you know, stuff like short pieces of doggerel or, or cliche stories of romance or these kinds of things he was writing and making a little bit of money from that. But he didn't consider that his real work. But he did write this philosophical essay based on his emerging ideas about Herbert Spencer and, and, and other things. Now, the book, London never really gives us a very clear window into what these philosophical works are like, or if they did, I, I missed it, and I, maybe I didn't read closely enough, but I don't really feel like you can come away from this and know what Martin Eden's like philosophical texts kind of proclaimed or declared. Uh, we get hints at it through knowing what he believes, and maybe it's just a recitation of what we already know about Martin Eden. But anyways, it's sent out. This book is sent out to a journal, the Acropolis. He also sends out Brissenden's final work, and this is a long poem called Ephemera, and I, I think it's it's interesting. There's also a work we don't quite know all the details of what's in it, but it's called Ephemera, and Martin Eden made so much of, it, of his early career, or he survived early in his career by writing Ephemera, and I think that's on purpose uh, for London's um, writing. But his friend Brissenden didn't want this work published at all. He, he said, it's just for me and for you because you're my dear friend, but I don't think the public is going to want it or want to see it. And But nevertheless, Eden sends it out. His plan is essentially to hear back from the publisher, and if the publisher says, yeah, I'll buy it for whatever, $10,000 or some ridiculous amount, then Bristol would, would accept, would, would be forced to basically publish it. Um, but the choice would still be there. So Eden thinks he can send it out pretty risk-free. After doing that, he meets the Morses for dinner, an increasingly common event in his life at this time. He's spending a lot more time with the Morses. He's already engaged to their daughter, Ruth, and he's starting to... The family, to a degree, is trying to accept that Martin Eden is going to be their son-in-law, and they're trying to meet with him. But as the Morses begin to accept Eden into their family, they're also beginning to try to shift his ideas towards their own, trying to make him like a standard you know, conservative Republican. Martin Eden is a considers himself a reactionary, but he is um, very particular. He's not the kind of, he's too individualist to really accept the standard political parties. So the regular right-left dichotomy of American politics is not something Eden would have accepted, which is one reason I think he's he is attracted to people like Brissenden, because they're also independent thinkers. They're, they're not the mainstream, you know, just the political talking points of the day, what they read in the newspaper. They're, he's thinking for his, for himself. So at this dinner, he speaks with this guy named 
Judge Blount. And Eden is challenged by Blount as a socialist. And it's really fascinating because we know Eden's mind by now. We know there's no socialist ideas really in his head. You know, he's not he's not like um, Wolf Larsen by any stretch of the imagination like this Nietzschean kind of there's no meaning to life that he doesn't go that far. Now, at some of his dark moments, you imagine Martin Eden thinking a bit like Wolf Larsen about the meaninglessness of life, essentially seeing the white logic, which will make an appearance in John Barleycorn. Um, but my, my question here is, why does Blount assume Eden is a socialist? And it seems it's because Eden is still being seen as this working class person. And so from the perspective of this middle class and from judges and the people in authority, the working class is always just kind of tensor socialism. And it also shows you that this guy doesn't really listen to what Eden says, doesn't read his work, doesn't really understand him. So there's this, this big gap. Now, Eden's response to this is, is pretty epic, and it's, it's fun to read. That is not the point. I mean to tell you that you are a poor diagnostician. I mean to tell you that I'm not suffering from the microbe of socialism. I mean to tell you that it's you who are suffering from the emasculating ravages of the same microbe. As for me, I am the inverted opponent of socialism, just as I am the inverterate opponent of your own mongrel democracy. That is nothing else than pseudo-socialism masquerading under a garb of words that will not stand the test of the dictionary. I am a reactionary, so I'm completely reactionary that my position is incomprehensible to you who live in a veiled lie of social organization and whose sight is not keen enough to pierce the veil. You make believe that you believe in the survival of the strong and the rule of the strong. I believe that there's a difference. When I was a trifle younger, a few months older, a few months younger, I believed the same thing. You see, the ideas of your, you and yours have impressed me, but merchants, traders, are cowardly rulers at best. They grunt and grub all their days in the trough of money getting. I've only swung back to the aristocracy, if you please. I am the only individualist in this room. I have to state for nothing. I look only to the strong men, the man on horseback, to save the state from its own rotten futility. Nietzsche was right. I will not take time to tell you who Nietzsche was, but he was right. The world belongs to the strong, to the strong who are noble, as well as to th and, and who do not wallow in the swine troth of trade and exchange. And it goes on, actually, from this point on, but I'll just give you about two-thirds of this rant. Um, it's... Certainly, there's a bit of Wolf Larson actually in there. If you, if you read the Sea Wolf, and I'll cover Sea Wolf in, in a few weeks, but it's it's very much like the kind of way he talks. Um, but Wolf Larson's less educated than Martin Eden, so it doesn't it sounds different out of the mouths of that different characters. All right, so that's that's chapter thirty-seven. Um, chapter thirty-eight, Brissenden. Uh, here's a real turning point in the in the story. Actually, um, you might be wondering where the story is going. If if, if you're holding this in your hand and you see. Wow, we're getting towards the end of this novel, and Martin Eden hasn't made any money yet. And, you know, it's, you know, there's only, what, 75, 80 pages left at this point. Martin Eden's career doesn't seem to be going anywhere. He hasn't married anyone. He's still a fairly young man. You know, what's going to happen? Where's going to be the tension that, that brings about a change in his life? Well, it, in many ways, it happens in Chapter 38. Brissenden takes Eden to a local meeting of the socialists. And his effort here is partially maybe to convert him to the movement, but also to get Eden to engage his ideas with people who will listen to him. Um, unlike the middle class who, who kind of just, the ideas go in one ear and out the other, and they're not understood. They're not processed. They're, you know, it's just, there's kind of a brainlessness about the middle class in, in this novel. But Brissenden thinks that the socialists, they'll listen. They're willing to engage. They want to talk to reactionaries and independent-minded think people, right? They're, they are eager to, to share their ideas, and they're eager to hear criticism and all that. So Brissenden wants to take him to the meeting. And also because Eden's talk with professionals is meaningless. It's meaningless to talk to other people in power because they have nothing to lose by engaging in petty philosophical discussions, right? It's a luxury for them, right? But for the socialists, these ideas matter because it's life and death for them. So for all these reasons, Brissenden thinks there's some potential in meeting with uh, the socialists. Eden eventually gives a speech at this meeting, and he gives his five-minute speech. That's what they're allowed, but he actually was allowed by unanimous consent to extend his thoughts past the typical five minutes. And then he starts to engage in the, in the audience, and we get this really wonderful back and forth between Eden and the socialists, and they ask questions of him. And... You know, it's almost kind of beautiful in a way. I, I'm reminded of Frank Norris's scene in The Octopus where you have the young writer. 
standing up and he gives this social speech about history and it, it kind of falls on deaf ears because it's so far from the needs of the of the of the farmers right the farmers are much more practical and these kind of highfalutin ideas don't matter to them but these these socialists and, and the contrast give Eden that back and forth that we were lacking maybe in the octopus. And it seems it's a real community. It's something real, which he's not getting in these other interactions with other people. So as much as it's almost like by turning his back on the socialists, it's not just turning back on a set of ideas that London thinks are, are necessary. It's also turning his back on a community and that intellectual engagement that Eden was needing more and more in his life. And if you know the end of the novel, um, spoiler alert, he kills himself. But if you, you know, if once you know the end of the novel, you, you can read back and, and feel and feel the kind of a bit of despair in how Eden just turns his back on these moments that has so much potential for him. He actually says many of the same things that he says to the judge in the previous chapter about how the United States is full of a slave morality, that democracy kind of gives too much power to the weak and not the strong. And he actually talks about the American revolutionaries not as radically egalitarians, but actually as the, the strong men who overthrow the, the competing power. And that should be the lesson we take from American history, not solidarity and cooperation. Um, quote, the 13 colonies threw off their rulers and formed the republic, so-called. The slaves were their own masters. There was no more masters of the sword. You couldn't get along without masters of some sort, and there arose a new set of masters, not the great virile noblemen, but the shrewd spidery traders and moneylenders. And they enslaved you all over again, but not frankly, as the true noblemen would do with the weight of their own right arms, but secretly, by spidery machinations and by the wheeling of cajolery and lies. End quote. Obviously, actually, this is exactly what a socialist might agree with, right? That that capitalism that came after the American Revolution was just a new form of slavery, uh, a new imposition by a new ruling class on the people. This is actually a common radical interpretation of the American Revolution. The question is, you know, was the American Revolution about who rules America or who rules within America? So some historians just say it's really about independence, but more and more historians have looked at the internal politics of the American Revolution said, well, there's conflicts between like the artisans and the planters and the planters and the slaves and the sailors and other people. And scholars like Jesse Lemish, uh, Nash, what's his first name again? Um, anyway, so I got his first name, but this is a story named Nash who kind of looks into this. And there's a, a lot of other works that look into these different factions of American society in the time of the American Revolution. And they start to say, well, really what the revolution was about was who's going to rule in the United States. And the winners of that were sort of the planter class and the merchant class. So in many ways, Eden does have this radical interpretation of history, but he can't come along to socialism because he sees that as just yet another kind of slavishness. He's a little bit too Nietzschean here to really come to terms with the socialists. Now, what's funny here is a journalist listening to this meeting takes away from this that Eden is a radical revolutionary socialist and he prints a report on the meeting and he actually na na names Martin Eden as one of the socialist speakers there. And here we got Jack London making fun, I think, of the stupidity of the media because the, you know, even the socialists, who probably many of them were workers, you know, who were sympathetic to socialism, you know, knew that Eden was their enemy in a lot of ways in his ideas. But the media just listens to this as well. Everyone talking up there must be a radical. I'll write down his name, print it. And so Eden is outed as a socialist. Chapter 39. Uh, with the newspapers out, you know, Martin Eden is basically declared as a socialist. And he's furious about this. Also angry are the people who are connected to Eden. His brother-in-law lets him know, I think through a letter or an intermediary, that he wants nothing to do with him. Ruth breaks up with him also through a letter. He gets this letter like the next day saying, you know, my parents, I can't marry you anymore because... You're a commie, you're a red. The reason was that he was a socialist. He couldn't be associated with the Morse family if he held on to such ideals. And the only person really in his circle that remains close to him is Brissenden. Eden is all but alone at this point in the story. Ironically, it's after discussing philosophy with the group that would have given Eden this broader purpose in life, a cause, a community, um, something to work for. You know, he... There, there was that out, that's what I'm trying to say. But since Eden could not become a socialist because of just his philosophy, he's he's kind of lost. And he becomes this individualist and 
not just in philosophy, but in fact. He's only got really one friend at this point in the story. Chapter 40, he runs into Ruth in the street. Barton Eden runs into Ruth in the street, but her brother's there, and he kind of makes a dis- keeps a distance, and they're not able to talk. Eden gets notice at home that ephemera was accepted. This is Brissenden's poem. It's accepted with a $3,500 advance, which is quite a lot of money. Um, usually with these numbers, you want to multiply it by 15 or 20, depending on the year. I think it's about 20. One. I think when I was doing it, looking at the Frank Norris novels, I, I did the math on this and I looked up a historical currency cal- converter and it seemed about a do- like one dollar is like twenty dollars in our currency. So thirty five hundred is a, is a fairly decent advance for a poem. But instead of checking with Brissenden, Eden accepts the advance and the publication on his behalf. So he's basically betraying his final friend, right? So th- that's significant here. He's he knows he has only one friend left in the world. He has got no connection to the Morses anymore. They've broken it off. He doesn't really have a good connection with his family. He's alienated most of the people in his life from all different classes. And now he does the act that his good friend specifically tells him not to do. Now he goes to find Brisson and discuss this with him. He's th- you know, hoping he can talk him into pub- you know, accepting this publication and coming to terms with it. But he learns that Brissenden had shot himself actually a few days earlier. In a way, this allows ephemera to live and Brissenden and Eden's relationship to remain stable. The, he saves the friendship after betraying it because his friend died. The friendship can only live in memory, but it's it's not tarnished. So Brissenden never knows that Eden went behind his back. Had the publication gone ahead while Brissenden was alive, it would have soured their relationship. Uh, but would that have just been another casualty in the pursuit of artistic perfection? And we do have a, a question here is whether artists and creators and thinkers have a right not to publish their work Um, now of course we all in in democracies that have any kind of that aren't complete bar bar bar, you know aren't completely barbarous give some money through tax dollars to support scholarship and universities and and professors you know even even if you're just a professor and you're not getting grants or things like that your university is supported by student loans which are backed by the government and other grants and things like that and a lot of universities just would not survive if not for like pell grants i've taught at those kinds of places so the question so the idea here is that part of the scholarly burden part of being that is is to do this research and to make it accessible right make your best effort to make it accessible now i know that sometimes difficult to do um, because of you know the publishing environment and we're not you know most scholarship isn't paid well for but there seems to be a, a value that you have a burden to do this it's a little bit fuzzier when you're talking about creative arts though i mean it's one thing if it's historical research or si- especially scientific research but it's fuzzier if it's art and culture and, and you know sh- can that be met, kept private i mean if someone writes a song in their in their apartment and it's beautiful, and it could give joy to so many people. Do they have a burden to record it and, and publish it? That's kind of a question that's asked here, and I, I don't really know the answer to that. I, I think I, I sort of agree almost with Eden that if this work is as important as the novel suggests it is, Brissenden would have been wrong to to keep it quiet. But you know, it is what it is. It's it's something to think about. Now, Eden is all alone now, uh, and he begins to dream of retiring to the South Seas. It's somewhere he was from time to time as a sailor, um, but now he's thinking about actually retiring to the South Seas. And he has more and more prolonged fantasies of just going off, opting out, dropping out, the kind of a dropout culture concept. Just turn, your, turn his back on all the horrible things in the, in the world. Chapter 41. Um, just as Eden has lost all his friends and social connections, he begins to his, his he begins to sell his work in a really rapid fire pace. He's able to live more comfortably. He starts to get three hundred dollar check, five hundred dollar checks, and even bigger ones. He doesn't have a purpose in his life though. He has no community. He has no one to spend time with, uh, and he spends what he makes. The the money comes in and he spends it. At the same time, ephemera turns out to be a big hit, although it's very very controversial among readers. Now it starts to be attacked by like ministers and conservatives and others and martin's kind of takes some pleasure in the fact that this work is being debated and discussed and 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 brissenden is being remembered so that's it's this is kind of the ending of the brissenden storyline as the success of ephemera and 
you know, if there's a theme, one one theme in Martin Eden is probably persistence and get, putting yourself out there until you're successful. Uh, it doesn't really work out for Martin Eden, but for Brissenden it it does. But it took, you know, he he died at the end, and before he could do that, he killed himself. So he never got to really achieve that. And we, I guess we sort of have a bit of a, a Moses like moment there. Mo, you know, he does, doesn't see the promised land. But he chooses to do that. It's, it's also a sign of individualism. I, I think there's this individualism kind of in the act of suicide that there may not be a positive side of individualism, but it is a, an act of, of one turning his back on all their people. Now, the sales start with Eden's work. And they're significant enough to allow him to escape his debts. And Eden notices that it's only when he got exposed as a socialist that his work began to sell. It's not clear that there was this connection between these two things, but certainly the outing of him as a socialist kind of lifted his profile a little bit. So the statement that, you know, there's no bad press, right? That's, I don't know if there's certain some people who would disagree with that, but, you know, in general, this idea that just getting your name out there, even if it's in a bad context, might be good for your career in a way. But his most important sale in this period of his life is his first book, The Shame of the Sun, which is his philosophical text and so someone who's worked his whole life right writing fiction or his whole career writing fiction you know makes his first big breakthrough work with a work of philosophy chapter 42 so despite his career taking off eden is at a low point in his life he often goes to the docks and he begins to explore the working class life he walked away from and he meets up with his old girlfriend lizzie Connolly. Lizzie Connolly's been a character that's been in the backdrop of this novel from the beginning. And, and it's actually, I imagine many people who read this novel more casually may not even remember her. You know, she's, they'll remember Ruth and Martin Eden and Brissenden. These characters are more on the forefront. But Lizzie Connolly is always in the background. background. She is, though, one of these connections to the working class past that he has. It's also another woman who has an interest in Martin Eden. And Ruth has an interest in Martin Eden as well, but she's, hers is always very contingent. She wants Eden to get a good job. She wants Eden to, to get educated and become proper. And she's always one pushing Eden to improve himself, but always to improve himself in ways that make him more middle class, right? Lizzie Connolly is someone who accepted Eden for who he was. And so her role in this novel was a, was a more authentic and unjudgmental and non-contingent type of love. So anyways, he talks to her. He goes to talk to her at a bar. And then the man she came in with, like, sees this. And he picks a fight with Eden. And, then, you know, they're about to come to blows. And people start saying, well, don't you know who this is? It's Martin Eden. He, he's boxed. And, you know, you don't want to mess with him. And, you know, but there is this fight and this, this scruffle. And it starts to spread. But Lizzie and Eden is, get out of the situation. And they start to bond a little bit. They even talk about a possible future together. And it's a really sweet moment. They, I think there's a point there on like a tram, one of these streetcars. It's a really nice moment. And as they're going away, this fight is breaking out behind them that they sort of started. Now, despite this really touching moment between these two characters, we realize that there's really no way he can go back to this life of the streets or the labor and working class culture. It's really a door that's more or less closed to him. Quote, Martin had enjoyed the fight with a recuperance of old fighting thrills. But they quickly died away, and he was oppressed by a great sadness. He felt very old, centuries older than those careless, carefree young companions of his other days. He had traveled far to go, too far to go back. Their mode of life, which had once been his, was now distasteful to him. He was disappointed in it all. He had developed into an alien. As the steamed beer tasted raw, so their companionship seemed raw to him. He was too far removed. Too many thousands of open books yawned before them and him. He had exiled himself. He had traveled to the vast realm of intellect until he could no longer return home. So there it is. The The steam beer imagery, it's something that shows up in Frank Norris too. And I actually had to look this up. Steam beer was kind of a California type of beer. And it was a cheap beer. It was this beer that really was sort of low quality. It's brewed at a higher temperature or something. But for whatever reason, it was really, it was the cheap form of beer and I, if you remember back to my series on Frank Norris in McTeague the character when he tries to upgrade his life a little bit he converts from steam beer to like bottled beer or something so um, that's the so it's 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 a symbol kind of of, of 
poor working class life. Chapter 43, uh, The Shame of the Sun is published and it sells out quickly. There's a second printing and it becomes a very, very popular book. It's very profitable for his publisher and Eden starts to get these royalty checks. And his publisher immediately offers him a new book contract with a $5,000 advance. And basically the contract is open and it's like, send us any book on any subject and we'll print it and here's $5,000 for your trouble. Eden accepts this. And at the same time, many of his other works that he was sending around to this machine of the publication industry start to get sold and picked up and he's getting these huge checks. So all these works have been floating around through the whole novel. And that's a theme throughout the whole novel is that these book works are basically all over the world. All these works he did are floating around and they're all coming back and he sends them back out, but they stop coming back. That's the point, right? They stop coming back and what comes back now is money. This cycle of submission and rejection ends and instead it's just this money coming in. So what Eden does with his money is he buys the home he's been subletting for Maria Silvia. So he was actually, a, Maria Silvia rented a, an apartment and he sublet a room and she was like an Italian immigrant. And he just buys that whole house for her. Um, and essentially overnight, Martin Eden has become a sensation. His life consists really at this point of selling off his work. He stops writing and decides to just sell all of his manuscripts to these eager publishers while he can and then retire by buying a South Pacific island. And by the end of this chapter, all his works have been sold. So when you think of all this, this misery of chapters and chapters of of artistic misery, of works being rejected, works being not considered, of being ignored, of poverty, right? It's, the, it's brutal. It goes, it's on every page of this novel. And then suddenly in one chapter, we go from like almost none of his work being sold to all of it, all of his major works being sold. It's like a, a moment, a, you know, a sudden, just an instant of his life, it changes. Uh, and it's, it's not even something that London really wants to spend much time talking about. He just sort of says all the works get sold. Anyway, chapter 44. This chapter consists of meetings with people who had previously abandoned Martin Eden. The first is Martin, Mr. Morse, Ruth's father, who comes to the office seeking to rec reconnect with him. And Martin Eden just ignores him. But the idea here is that now rich, Eden is good enough for Ruth. And Martin avoids speaking with him. Many other people try to meet him for dinner as well, and Eden starts to reject many of these suitors. And he talks about this theme that's going to fulfill the last few pages of this book. I mean, I think there's only, yeah, there's only like 40 pages left in the whole book. But he keeps coming back to this idea in his head, and it's, it's quote-unquote work performed. And what he's mad about is that all these people didn't value him when he had written this stuff. But now that other people have bought it and paid for it, he's valued. And he says, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's not true friendship because when I have done this work, it was work performed. I had created that stuff in the past. Right? It's so only now it's being recognized. And again, this is another criticism, I think, of middle class tastes and how they just kind of consume ideas. And they don't really value things for their quality. They value things because it's popular and trendy. And I think that's one thing maybe we have to confess about this. We don't read much of Martin Eden's work. He's certainly smart, but we don't know how good his, his works are. And for all we know, there might be really good reasons why his work was being sent back by those publishers early on. You know, the people he has read it don't ever, you know, they either have good reasons for lying to Eden about his quality. You know, certainly Brissenden likes it. So I guess he's, I guess, our best evidence that Eden's work is valuable. But anyways, that doesn't matter because what matters is popular passions and the market and what can sell, right? Even the publishers who are supposed to be these educated guardians of, of knowledge and what the the people read don't really value it as well and you know and and this point is made several times in the book that these you know our stories that he didn't think were that valuable got big paychecks just because he was famous right? and other ones that he thought were really good earlier in the novel didn't get anything so um this is repeated and repeated as the work performed in eden's mind he does, though, meet his brother-in-law, Bernard Higginbotham. And it's a very hostile, intense meeting because they hadn't had a good relationship for the whole novel. And basically, Martin Eden offers him several thousand dollars credit to modernize his store, which is something he wanted to do for a while. Higginbotham runs like a 
like a general goods store or something. He wants him to modernize. He wants to modernize the store, but he didn't have the money. So Eden says, "I'll give you that money. It's like seven thousand dollars." And he says, "What's the interest on that?" And I think Higginbotham figures it out. It's like thirty dollars a month or something. And Eden says, "Okay, you take those thirty dollars a month you owe me and said buy a servant and let my sister just relax, have a life of leisure. Don't make her work for you anymore." Higginbotham initially refuses this suggestion. He he somehow doesn't either want to spend the money that way or he doesn't like the idea of his wife not working, not working around the home. So Eden says, okay, fine, I'll just buy the servant. I'll pay for the servant and and not give you the money. And then Higginbotham finally accepts because he wants the 7000 bucks. So again and again, these ghosts from Eden's past creep up and they want back into his life. And Eden maintains his chip on his shoulder. So now maybe we could say, well, Eden should just grow up and be a little bit more mature and realize, yeah, these people will just like you because of your money, but you got to accept that. That's the fate of most of us, you know? So whatever, big deal. You'll at least have a circle. You can marry Ruth and, but no, he, he's really bitter, embittered by this. And he refuses to really reach out to reform the, recreate these bridges, despite them trying to reach out to him. And, you know, I'm sympathetic with Eden on there, but on, on some level, you know, he's not even trying, right? He's not really trying to fix these relationships at all. Chapter 45, Eden runs into Lizzie Connolly. And she declares, she says something interesting. She says there's something wrong with Eden's mental state. Now, she's the character who's sort of always loved him and cared for him in the background of the story. But she says there's something wrong with your mind. You know, there's a screw loose in your, in your mind. And later on, he runs into Ruth and they have a very uncomfortable meeting. And it goes on for most of the chapter. Eden tells Ruth off for basically caring for him only when he had money and success, but failing to support his work that led up to that success. In fact, it was Ruth who was the major force constantly telling Eden to turn his back on being a, a writer. In these two chapters, what is happening is the chances Eden had to restore old friendships are made impossible by Eden's pride and his anger about his former treatment. He simply can't swallow this pride and therefore refuses to reconcile with anyone at all. It's very hard to blame Eden for this, but the reader also knows that he is only further isolating himself by doing this. Yeah, he's got this dream, dream of Pacific Island, right? But he wants to totally check out. He just wants to ignore, be away from everyone. He's, he's at this point turned his back on all of society as useless to him. I guess back to the previous point, like do scholars have an obligation to write? Do writers and artists have an obligation to to complete what they have to say? I mean, if, you know, I, I sometimes wonder why baseball players, you know, after their first year of arbitration, don't just retire. <laughs> you know, maybe your first year of arbitration, you get $2 million salary bump, right? I understand working your way through the minimum salary. But once you have the big payout, why not just buy a house in the woods somewhere and retire you know or at worst you know a few years like that you'll be you'll be set for life but they keep playing right of course you might say they have an obligation to the to the to the art to the game to provide their talent right do artists have the same thing i mean just do writers have to continue to write until they die is that an obligation they have to the public does eden have this obligation by running away is he uh, he's denying whatever future the world whatever future works he might produce and i don't want to say that artists should be slaves of the public but it's it's you know it's like if a scientist figures out cold fusion and dies with that knowledge in his head that seems to be almost a criminal act considering the challenges we're facing in terms of energy and climate change so i don't know it's just something i'm thinking about while i'm talking about this stuff but for, for the importance of this novel at this point is that Eden simply is refusing to reconnect himself to society uh, at the moment when he could, when he would certainly be accepted back with open arms to the middle class. He just doesn't want anything to do with him anymore. So um, chapter 46, the final chapter of the book, Eden continues to get news from his of his sales from editors. But he is committed to moving to the Pacific and getting a small little valley for himself. He wants to kind of become 
like Melville in you know in the Valley of the Marquesas or something. He meets Joe Dawson, his former co-worker, and this was the guy who worked with him in the laundry. And he he went a hoboing and he tried to get Martin Eden to go a hoboing with him before. And Eden talks with them and they work work out a plan to basically buy a laundry and. Eden provides the capital for this. Joe promises to improve the working conditions for the people. Now, one thing I'm noticing here in the later chapters is that Eden is doing very socialist things. He's helping his neighbor, um, Sylvia, to get her own home. She, he helps Joe and start a laundry. And he says, no, don't. he doesn't want Joe to be an individualist, capitalist, greedy person. He wants him to create a laundry that's not going to degrade the lives of the workers like the one they worked in together. Right? So he's doing these very socialist things after he makes money. Although he still strives for this individualist future for himself. So I don't know if this is a contradiction, but it's interesting to me. Now he gets on a ship headed to the Pacific. Uh, but his mind is still not really right about his future and his depression does not stop. Despairing and depressed Eden finally kills himself before he reaches his Eden. Um, so that's the novel. Oh, that's Martin Eden. Um, my overall comments on this. Well, Martin Eden is one of Jack London's masterpieces. One of his best books. Maybe his best book. Maybe his masterpiece. It's certainly one of the best books written about writing, about being a writer. You know, from a fiction standpoint, there's been some good nonfiction books about writing. But, you know, as for fiction books, this is the most memorable that I've ever come across about just being a writer. You know, I guess Stephen King writes about writers a lot, and his books are certainly memorable, but his, they're never, uh, or sometimes, but usually they're not about writing themselves, right? They're, they're just writers are characters. But this novel is actually much more than that. It's about class. It's about social mobility. It's about depression and mental illness. It's about work. It's about alcohol and its impact on creativity, something he's going to pick up on again in John Barleycorn. It's about relationships. It's about violence. And the, you know, it has really something for almost every reader. Romance is in here too. I haven't talked much about romance in this podcast, but it's there. Anyone who's not looked at Martin Eden should, I think, try to go into it. I, I think it's worth it. It's it's not that long. It's you know the it's four hundred pages in the Library of America, but the Library of America pages are actually quite small compared to what a lot of how a lot of books are published. You know, take a couple days to read, I suppose. Depending on how much time you can devote to it. It is one of his longer works, though. You, if you're used to Jack London reads being quick, like Call of the Wild or White Fang, you're not going to get that here. It is a pretty easy book. It's, a, it's got really engaging moments. It's full of really vivid descriptions and environments. You know, it's not all this. Like in some of these um, Jack London tales, you get a lot of internal kind of meditation. He's a naturalist, of course. So like, Frank Norris, who's really interested in the internal mind of his characters. But you, this book has a lot of kind of vivid descriptions of the city, of the homes that people live in, of the, how people dressed. There's really some great inter, in, intrapersonal moments, too, where the characters think back on themselves. The question is, is it autobiographical? Most people say it's auto, autobiographical. Um, now, London wrote a lot of autobiographies. The Road, The People of the Abyss. The Voyage of the Snark, which the series won't be able to get to because the Library of America never published it. And, and then John Barleycorn. So he wrote four autobiographies looking at different parts of his life. So he didn't really, if this was autobiographical, it didn't really have to be. It might be autobiographical about some elements of the experiences he had as a writer. You know, especially maybe that the feelings of frustration about not getting work sold. In many ways, Eden is a mirror image of Jack London in philosophy and ideology. Um, I, I, I do think Jack London maybe started thinking like Martin Eden and then grew out of it. He kind of grew into his socialism over time a little bit. But, you know, I don't know. I don't really read this as autobiographical, even that might have elements inspired by frustrations that, that Jack London had. Apparently this was written, not apparently it was written, it was written while he was on the two-year voyage with the Snark. Now, he wrote a whole book about that. Uh, it was a period of, of great depression and frustration and sickness for him. He talks about it as his great sickness in John Barleycorn. And so there is a lot of his own personal frustrations in there. 
And Wikipedia here is telling me that Ruth Morris was based on the first love of London's life. So there are highlights that are, I guess, autobiographical, but, you know, I, I think, you know, not really. Now, as for the death, the now Jack London dies at 40. Now, I'm not sure Martin Eden's age here. I'm guessing 25, 26 when he dies here. It's not really clear. I mean, maybe someone could figure it out if they did a real close textual analysis. Um, but Jack London um, dies at 40. He dies under sort of mysterious circumstances. Not mysterious enough that we sh should jump to the conclusion of some that he killed himself. Um, it seems addiction or morphine may have had a role in this. Um, he certainly had a lot of illnesses in his life from his travels. Uh, he had alcoholism. He was an alcoholic. He took a lot of pain medicine. He had dysentery. So it was probably a cocktail of things that, that killed him at a young age. Um, but in the sense of the Brissenden and, and Martin Eden killing themselves, I don't think are clues that Eden or that Jack London was thinking about suicide. Um, that doesn't mean he didn't face depression in his life. And he confesses that certainly in John Barleycorn, which will be the next work I look at. So let, let's just kind of hold off some of these issues until John Barleycorn, where maybe I'll have some more to say about them. Or maybe you know something. I don't know. If you know more about Jack London than me, you probably do. Share it. I'm, I'm just kind of jumping into this stuff. Um, themes of Martin Eden. So this is the final episode of Martin Eden, so let's go over some of the major themes. I, I, I have quite a few here. It's a long novel, of course. Well, medium-sized novel. One, the big one, Class. What to say about class? Eden is moving between classes, uh, and here we see class is associated with culture, a certain level of education, um, and that one can be kind of educated out of one's class loyalty, or one can feel out of place because of their education or their background or how they look. Like when the judge assumes Eden is a socialist, as a good evidence of, of just class affecting how people see each other just based on looks. So class is a really big theme here. And yeah, Martin Eden is the most mobile character in terms of class that we meet in the novel going kind of up and down and, and becoming rich by the end of the novel. But, you know, for him, it really is at a cost of losing any connection he has. Uh, another theme, writing and publishing. Just the struggle to write, how difficult it is. Do you need to have a certain education? Is writing a craft? Or is it just something that one work sweats through through diligence and hard work and then publishing publishing is such a it's presented here anyways as such a capricious and arbitrary process that you know if you, if you get a work published you're lucky if you make a name for yourself you're probably just lucky and for every famous writer there's hundreds of others brilliant writers who don't get published um, we hope the publishing industry does a good job of getting our best voices heard but i'm not sure that's always true um, another theme, depression. Uh, depression is certainly a powerful theme in this novel. Martin Eden faces it at various times in the novel, especially towards the end. He does kill himself. Brissenden apparently was also very depressed, although we really don't get any internal monologue on Brissenden's depression, but we learn through his suicide that he probably was too. Is this the fate of the artist? Um, I'm not sure Jack London thinks so. I think he's saying being an artist and being isolated is a problem. And there are ways that thinkers and writers and creators can be connected to the world. They don't have to be, you know, the, the lonely suffering artist. Uh, for him, the solution was socialism. But even for Brissenden, socialism didn't quite give him that happiness and community he, he needed. Um, philosophy. Well, I don't know. There's so much philosophy in this book. It's often people talking about philosophy. Um, Herbert Jack London read philosophy. He was well aware of it. He wasn't really, except for moments, a philosopher, but he certainly knew it. In works like John Barleycorn and this work and in Seawolf, you get a lot of evidence that he knew philosophy, especially contemporary philosophy, quite well. He knew William James. He certainly knew Herbert Spencer and Darwin. And these. So, I, you know, I would say John Barleycorn is a work of philosophy, but I don't know how many of his other works would fit that that, that category. But we got a lot of philosophy here, especially Herbert Spencer. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I don't think you have to read Herbert Spencer to understand this book. I certainly 
didn't. But, you know, social Darwinism is a theme here, and individualism. And that leads me to my next theme, which is individualism versus socialism as an American character. You know, I guess, you know, America never had a socialist party. Like, Britain had the Labor Party, which they, their anthem is still like the red flag. So they're still kind of by identity a socialist party. America didn't have that. America didn't have this socialist movement that really threatened it. I guess the high point may have been Eugene Debs. Like he got like a million votes in 1912. But, you know, it's still, as Tocqueville says, Americans form communities and groups. And that one, that's what makes them different from like Europeans who are more like stuck in their class. They have these class associations, which kind of is where they see them place in society. But Americans form form groups, form associations, form clubs and things. And that these become more important than like a class status. And in fact, they transcend class often. But yeah, at the same time, individualism is very much an American character. You have uh, the the agrarian myth of Thomas Jefferson and you have others who, you know, the Homestead Act and a lot of political thought worked into this individualism, being alone, being self-sufficient. And I think they both exist. And I think there's a tension in American character between socialism and individualism. That's one reason I think anarchism is so potentially potent in the United States, because it does combine these two elements together. And if they ever could get combined into a powerful like political party, I think it would be almost uh, unstoppable in the United States because it's it's really based on the two two legacies of, of, of American cultural history, the individual and the community, right? The frontiersmen and the New England town hall, right? They're, they're both America. And I'm going a bit farther than I think Martin Eden does or Jack London does in Martin Eden. But these two things competing in the American character is interesting to me. And I think you can kind of look at this novel as evidence of that. Okay. Uh, next, violence in street life. You know, I was a bit bothered at times, and this is not the only time Jack London does this. He often presents working class life as violent and brutal and often, you know, people fighting over girls, people fighting on the streets or just boxing. And there's that whole cheese face part of this novel where for years he's getting in fights with this guy cheese face. You know, is working class life necessarily violent and brutal? It's it, he seems to think so. And he comes from the streets. So who knows? Maybe he's right. But, you know, it, in, in, in the Sea Wolf, it's the same kind of thing violence is just part of working class life and it seems only almost unescapable the pacific islands has escaped this is a very small it's almost a grace note in the book it's not really a, a full theme but the pacific islands as an escape is something we've seen in in melville to a degree so I, i'm bringing it up again here uh, his and there are people who still probably dream of going, if not getting a chunk of land in America, getting their 50 acres and building a home there and just checking out. But, you know, specifically the Pacific Islands as an attraction. Now, he's not there for the exoticism of it. He, he wants to get away from people. Next, work. Work's a big theme here. Uh, first, the work of writing. But uh, the work as a sailor, Martin Eden worked in a laundry. He worked other kind of jobs throughout his life. Uh, we got middle class jobs talked about. And Ruth wants Martin Eden to get a middle class job and get a profession and work that way. And work seems to be incompatible with creativity. Except like creative work is its own category. But that aside, like work in the laundry. It's this idea that you can kind of work all day in a factory, go home and write is, is disproven here and it's disproven actually in John Barleycorn too. And I, from my personal experience, I can say this is right as well. It's very hard to reconcile these two things. Reading, maybe, but writing, it's, it's difficult to be creative after 8, 10, 12 hours in, a, in hard labor. Okay, alcoholism. I don't think Eden ever becomes an alcoholic here, um, but there's moments when he talks about his relationship with alcohol and he gets more and more seduced by alcohol, particularly when he's working in the laundry. So again, I'm not going to say more about this, but it's just a foreshadowing what we're going to see in John Barleycorn. There's a whole lot in this novel also about relationships and what, what should they be based on? Um, you know, and then you might read this novel and wonder, what does Eden see in Ruth? What does Ruth see in Eden? What is the foundation of these relationships? Is it just that you just ran into each other at, you know, at the right time and kind of fell for each other and just by habit 
got to know each other. In one of his other essays, he like how I became a socialist, he sort of says I just through endurance, you know, sort of got worked into me over time. Sometimes relationships do that, right? And I think Roos and Eden's relationship really is dragged on for a long time before they finally become, you know, fiancés or finally agree to get married, get engaged. It ends so, you know, ungloriously compared to how the work up to the relationship, you might actually be disappointed. I wonder what they'd do if they film this. Would they, would they make it with a relationship work out in the end? I wouldn't be surprised. And then the last theme I want to talk about, and again, there are probably many more. So if you have more ideas of themes, please share them with me. I would um, love to know about them. Um, opting out or going to Croatan. Now, the metaphor going to Croatan, I'm, it's not mine. It's coming from, I think, Hackham Bay. And maybe someone else had it even before him. Now, the idea of going to Croatan is... It comes from the colony of Roanoke, right? The Roanoke settlers, they settled there. The ship left. When the ship came back with supplies and new people, the colony was gone. All that was written on the tree was Croatan. Now, is this a place? Is it a name? Is it just graffiti? Was it someone trying to write a love letter and stopped? Is it a different language? No one really knows. There's, we sort of think now that these people probably just kind of moved in with the Indians and merged with local tribes. Right? Maybe the Tuscarora. And so I actually heard this. There's a video on YouTube uh, with a scholar talking about how the Iroquois looked at the Tuscarora as weird because they had a, like a spur, like kind of eye. They had the Tuscarora eye. They had a, like they had some European characteristics, I guess, was what he was trying to argue. And that maybe this goes all the way back to the Roanoke settlement. Now, I don't know. I, I really can't say. I just can only say I saw that video. But the whole idea of opting out, I think, is very interesting theme in American history. You have a lot of characters who try to do that. I mean, even we saw this in Steinbeck in a way where, you know, George and Lenny wanting to get a farm and just kind of check out. Uh, the whole plot of, of To a God Unknown is kind of a guy trying to go to the West to check out of life and then eventually he kills himself. So there's a lot. This is a big theme in American literature. Melville, for the very first episode in this podcast was about Taipei, which is about a guy just quitting his job. So this idea of checking out to have to find freedom only by escaping your circumstances and having you have to do that in a radical, abrupt, dramatic way. And what are the ways of doing that? Well, suicide is one. We have evidence in this novel that suicide is a way to escape. We have the Pacific as a kind of a dream. Go off to the Pacific. You got to be rich to do that, right? If you're poor, you can go hoboing, a hobo like what what Joe Dawson does. Right. But there are there are there are kind of escape paths we're given. Right. And I don't think Jack London ever is fully satisfied by them. But that will do it for this episode, I think. And we'll do it for Martin Eden. Um, thank you so much for listening to this series on Martin Eden. And I've been talking it up for much of this episode. So um, call, I hope you keep listening and I'll be very shortly uploading my thoughts on, on the first part of John Barleycorn. Uh, thank you so much for listening.